good for reading. If we haven't met, and I'm, I haven't been here very much, as I'm popping in from Carlton, my name is David too. I've met about five Davids, it feels, this morning. Is this up? I think it's up. Uh, yeah, there's so much in this morning's passage as we come to look at the fall, uh, and we're not going to be able to cover it all. If you have more questions, please, at the end of this, which I'm sure you will, I mean, I still do, come and chat to me, um, or chat to each other and challenge each other from uh, the word in front of you. I'm sure Josh uh, could point you in a helpful book to get started on your questions as well. Um, let me pray for us as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we... Uh, Thank you for the book of Genesis. We thank you that you speak to us and have spoken about how uh, this world is uh, now because of sin. Um, Thank you that it does make sense of the world we live in. We ask today that we would uh, be challenged and encouraged and spurred on to look uh, for that uh, future glory to come in Jesus. We pray. Amen. So where have we been in these first two chapters? We saw that creation was very good. God had filled the garden. He'd placed man and woman in the garden. He gave them authority over it. The man was to lead. He was to work and watch over the garden. The woman was the man's perfect helper and complement to do this task together. Together they were to fill and subdue creation. Together they had a task to do. They had one command as well. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, you will certainly die. This tree was in the garden so that they could exercise their position under the authority of God. They were to obey his voice, to obey his command by not eating from this tree. The man was special. They were unique in creation. They were in the image of God but they were not God. The Garden of Eden was paradise. There the man and woman dwelt with God. They spoke with God. They walked with God. Their relationship to each other was one of love and care and affection and perfect partnership. And creation, it posed no threat. It posed no harm to man. It was in fact a source of joy and a source of provision for man. All the travelling we could do these days, all the travelling we could do in Australia from Jarvis Bay to the Daintree Rainforest, from Mount Kosciuszko to Ningaloo Reef way over in the west, or even if we travelled across the seas to Europe and Asia and saw the sights of creation, all of these beautiful places would pale in comparison to the garden. God saw what he had made and it was very good. And so we come to our chapter this morning. Three scenes for us. One, the fall. Two, the excuses. Three, the consequences. So three scenes. The fall, the excuses, and the consequences. As I said, this is such an important passage. One of the guys in my gospel team this week, as we were reading Genesis 2, couldn't help himself but make a comment on Genesis 3. He said that when he first read it, It just made sense of his experience of the world. It just makes sense of our experience of the world. Which is what I want us to see this morning. 
that this passage does just make sense of things. The world, the world pushes and promotes progress. We can get back to the garden by our own efforts, even if they don't use that language. And even though we do live in a time of relative prosperity and peace, there are still times in everyone's life where we come face to face with the brokenness of this world, the struggles of this life. The things of this world, they don't satisfy, they don't fulfill us. People let us down. And well, when these times come, we are comforted with well-meaning lines, well-meaning intentions, with lines like, it, it is what it is. That's life. It'll all turn out for the better. Just make the most of it. Make the most of now. But this passage today, it shows us that creation is not the way God made it to be. It's not the way God made it to be. The pain and the brokenness and the frustration is not normal. It's broken and it sits under God's judgment, which stems way back to this event, the fall. So our first scene, the fall, verses 1 to 7. These verses helpfully tell us, right from the beginning, what sin is. Sin is disobeying God's good command is disobeying God's good command. And here we see the original sin that has affected us all. So much of what we see in this scene, in the fall, we see in ourselves. I know I do, and I've seen it more and more as I've spent a couple of weeks actually thinking about it and writing this sermon. In verse 1, though we are introduced to the serpent, and he is the most cunning of the creatures... And he is not where he's meant to be. He's a creature of the field and he's found in the garden. From other parts of scripture, we come to understand that the serpent here is Satan. But he's not the cartoon picture like of Satan. No, he's not, got, he's not red with devil horns and a pitchfork. No, he shows up in the ordinariness and the everydayness of a creature. He's difficult to see. Well, the serpent, he casts a line out, doesn't he? A seemingly innocent line, full of deception, though, and full of cunning. And the woman, she nibbles, and then she bites. The serpent gets the woman to the question, the very word of God in verses 1 and 4. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You won't die. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's a jealous God. He just doesn't want you to be like Him, even though they are made in the image of Him. The woman responds and, well, she misrepresents God's word here. She forgets about the freedom she has to eat from any of the trees except for one. There was a mul- many, a multitude of trees that she could have eaten from and she forgets about that. She adds to the command that she can't even touch the tree. And she minimizes the certainty of the penalty of death. She misrepresents and she questions God's word. 
And well, the snake, the serpent has dropped out of the scene, hasn't he? In fact, he doesn't speak again. He's only given a couple of verses in this whole chapter. But we set, but what he has said, oh, we get, sorry, insight into the deliberations of the woman. She looks up and she puts herself into the place of God, doesn't she? She looks at the fruit and she deems it to be good, just as God did each day of creation. He saw what he had made and it was good. She sees the fruit and she sees that it is good for, good to look at, good for eating and good for gaining wisdom. And then the fall, the sin, it happens so fast at the end of verse 6. She looks, she takes, she eats. She gives to her husband and he eats too. The woman is deceived first, yes. However, the man who should be leading and stepping in and protecting and guarding, well, he just listens to the voice of his wife. He obeys the voice of his wife and not God. He turns from God's command and listens to what his wife has to say concerning sin. He needs no persuasion. He asks no questions. And so he just takes and eats too. He's not deceived. He's not blind but he's just blatantly sinning. And their eyes are opened. They've put themselves now up into the place of God. They try to shortcut wisdom by skipping God. They try to seek knowledge of good and evil by skipping God. But he, the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. He determines good and evil. He is the creator. He is the one in authority, not man, not woman. They have disobeyed his command They have sinned here. The original sin. And without being accused by anyone, they see their nakedness and are ashamed. They cover themselves up with leaves. Surely this is a sign of their guilt. With no accusation against them, they know that they've done wrong as they hide from each other and they hide from God. Immediately their relationship that was so beautiful in the garden before is affected. So damaging and so immediate are the consequences for sin. So the first sin, the fall, that has since affected all of humanity. Do we not see ourselves in this event? Because we do the same. As we resist and we walk towards sin or as sin comes to us, we do many things. We slowly, we may slowly twist the word of God so it lines up with what we want to do. We might just ignore the, bla- the clear commands of God and, and suppress them and just put them out of our mind as we can walk into sin. The commands that, call, that God calls us to obey him, to love him alone, to repent, to have faith, to love your neighbour as yourself, we ignore. Or we minimise the consequences of sin and how it affects ourselves, our relationships. As we say, it's not going to hurt anyone but me. But we have a relationship with our God that is hindered by sin as we hide away. We should not do what the man and the woman did. 
it is worth saying, as, as obvious as it might seem. Do not be deceived, but also do not ignorantly walk into sin. Don't muck around with it. Don't play with it. Don't, don't, uh, don't muck around with it. Don't play with it. But listen to God and obey his words. There is no excuse, as we will come to see. So scene one, the fall. Sin has affected the world as we know it. This is the original sin. And so scene two, here come the excuses. Verses 8 to 13, very briefly. It's almost comical how they both point away from themselves. I think we would be in hysterics if it weren't for the event that was being described here. It's comical because it's exactly what we do. It's exactly as well what we expect in others. They blame God. And the man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, they blame their circumstances, just as our world does, just as we do. You see this a lot in kids, I think, more so than others, but even in adults you still see the same. Growing up, my brother, he would always blame a magpie that flew in the window and did it. (laughs) We never found the magpie. It wasn't my fault, we say. I was just following the leader. You put me in this position. Oh, it stands out, doesn't it, when someone admits they're wrong and says sorry and asks for forgiveness? It's an easy way for us as Christians to stand out as different in this world. That when you do something wrong at work or around the house, or as you wrong your children maybe, instead of blaming others or ignoring it, Maybe you admit the wrong, you say sorry, and you seek forgiveness. How different that would be. Scene two, the excuses. It doesn't really help them though, does it? Scene three, the consequences. Verses 14 to 24. In this next scene, Adam and Eve have to face the consequences of what they've done as they face the judgment of God. Creation here is placed under the judgment of God and what we see is that what we call normal, what we come to expect in life is actually part of the judgment of God. For everything is not the way it was made to be. The toil and the frustration of work, the difficulty we have in providing food, the fraught nature of our relationships with each other, with men and women, But above all, we see the alienation man has from his all-caring creator. The Lord, so the Lord begins by talking to the snake or to the serpent. He curses the serpent for having lifted his head above the station he has. He was a creature and he was meant to be under the authority of man and under the authority of God, but he has lifted his head. And so the Lord humbles him to eat the dust all his days, destined to be defeated by Christ. Notice in verse 15. There is a glimmer of grace and hope here. The the seed of the woman will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now theologians, they like to use big words and they call this the proto-euangelion. 
forget about it. They like to be smart. But what they could have simply said is here is the first gospel, the first glimpse of the gospel, a glimmer of grace amongst a dark and upsetting chapter. It's wonderful, isn't it, that there is a glimmer there that we have now seen in the shining glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 4, the Lord Jesus is tempted face to face by Satan. And just as, just as Satan did with the woman, he twisted and misused God's word to the Lord Jesus. But where the w- woman and Adam failed, Jesus held to and used the word of God rightly. He did not cave to the temptations. He did not fall. But doing what we could not, he obeyed. And so that we may be credited righteousness, that we may be seen as righteous because of his obedience and his death on a cross. Isn't it wonderful that just three chapters into the the Bible, we have the glimpse, we have a glimpse of the gospel. And so in the middle of these consequences for sin, there is a hint of Satan's defeat. There is a hint of man's victory in Jesus Christ. God's grace is here. But let's keep going. Now, as I came to look at the consequences on the woman and the man, as I wrote this part, I hesitated, if I'm honest. Because these things are so painful. They're so real for all of us in so many different ways. And so I became really aware of what I was saying, of what I was writing. And so as I, as I come to this section, I'm going to miss things. But my aim here is to be sensitive to the pains and the struggles that we all face in different ways because of these consequences. But I also don't want to water them down. I want to capture them appropriately so that the difficulty of life, the pain of, these, of sin and its consequences is really seen. Bear in mind as well as we go through this section that they are a description of the consequences of sin. They are a description of the fallen and broken world that we now live in. Let me clarify that. That the consequences are not what we aim for. They are not an excuse, but what we lament and we fight against as Christians. And also what is meant to drive us to Christ. What is meant to drive us to God in repentance and faith. They are not what we aim for. So for both the man and the woman, the consequences affect their roles from chapter 2 mainly. Remember they had a task. Together, together they were to fill and subdue the earth. He was to lead, she was to follow and help. They are equal but different. But now that is going to be difficult. The woman's role as helper and complement to Adam is now tense and is a battle. Regarding children, from conception to birth, there will be pain and there will be anguish. Regarding her place in the order of creation, she will seek to lead and rule over men, man, And he will rule over her, not in love and kindness and protection and honour, but harshly and brutally. 
We see this today, I think, as many groups and people advocate to push men to the side and are blamed for the problems of the world and women are held up. But we also see it as men in positions of power abuse that power and squash women under their thumb. Neither is right. Neither is the way this relationship was made to be. Men should be seeking to lead from the front, protecting, providing, caring for those under their care. Not passively as Adam did, but proactively. The author, he gives more time though as he turns to Adam. To the consequences for Adam, he says, yet again, why he is being judged. Look down with me at verse 17. Surely, surely we know why he's being judged. We just read it, but he says, God says and makes it clear, because you obeyed the voice of your wife, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The problem is not that he listened to his wife. The problem is that he obeyed his wife and not God. God says, do not eat. She says, eat, and he does. And so the Lord deals out the penalty for this sin on Adam. And he pretty well says, I will make your eating difficult until you die. Your role will be hard. His role as a worker and as worker and provider is frustrated. Creation the, that was a source of joy and provision becomes an enemy of man. Where he could freely pick fruit from the many trees and eat thorn, eat thorns and thistles will get in the way now. He will eat bread until he dies. Now, I love bread. But long gone are the days of picking fruit and eating. The bread we will eat stands in contrast, I think, though, here to eating fruit. During lockdowns, and don't know if anyone else had a crack at making bread, but it takes forever. It's so hard. You have to, and I, I didn't even have to mill the flour or harvest the flour. I just got it in a nice little bag, and I had to knead it, and I had to let it rise and knead it, and let it rise and knead it, and then put it in the oven. Oh, eating fruit would have been so much easier. <laughs> The penalty of death that God warned about that said it will certainly happen is going to happen. It won't be immediately but they will return to dust and death will reign for all men. But the final consequence comes as they are driven out of the garden, cut off from God, cut off from the tree of life. The paradise of the garden of Eden is no more And life outside is one of pain and trouble. It is tiring and burdensome. Their relationship with the ground is hard and toilsome. Their relationship with each other is strained. What was once to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. What was headship and helping becomes rebellion and ruling. And this will continue until they die. We experience this today, don't we? As humanity relates with each other and the world, as everyone has to face death at one point or another, the world is not the way God made it to be. But more significantly, we are cut off from God 
where we may have once walked, where Adam and Eve once walked and spoke freely with the Lord, they are now cast out from his presence, unable to come before him because there is no one righteous. We are all enemies of God and by nature we are objects of wrath. And so our relationship with God is not the way God made it to be. So let's look to Christ now. Life is not the way it was made to be. Don't be numb to that. Don't just accept it. See it and feel it. Lament it and mourn it. It's painful and it's incredibly painful at times. But in God's patience, He has not wiped us out for our sin, but He is giving people and giving us time to turn to Him in repentance and faith. So turn to Him if you have not and continue to turn to Him in repentance and faith if you have. Because as you see the consequences of sin in this fallen and broken world, we are meant to be going towards God, not hiding in the trees. But as I said before, where we fail and we disobey God and succumb to the temptation that that come our way, Jesus succeeded. He faced the devil and his temptation head on and was obedient to God's word. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Only by his obedience and his blood are we made righteous, are we declared righteous. For just as sin entered the world at the fall and so condemnation and death spread to all men, how much more has the free gift of life in Jesus Christ overflowed to the many? Where sin multiplied, and boy, do we sin, see sin multiplied now. Where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. As we come to the end of the chapter, we're meant to be thinking, how are we going to get back to the garden? Josh has already alluded to this at the beginning of the service. How are we going to get back to the garden? How, is our, how are all things going to be restored? Well, we look back to the Lord Jesus and we look forward to the new creation. And in that, we can truly rejoice in all circumstances of life. We look forward to the restoration of creation. To, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where the way things are now will be no more. Let me read for us the same verses that Josh read for us at the beginning. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, or 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. 
Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are making everything new, that there is a future glory and hope where we will dwell with you and you will be our God and you will be with us. That the pain and brokenness of this world, as much as it sucks and as much as it hurts, we can endure and rejoice in all circumstances as we look to Jesus on the cross and we look forward to the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. In your son's name we pray. Amen.